0: and welcome to physical attraction. In the last episode, we talked about the idea of citizens assemblies, the idea of allowing decisions to be made by a random group of citizens who are informed and allowed to debate the issue in detail, including some of the pros and cons of various different solutions to the issue in question. In this episode, we'll go into much more depth into the citizens assembly that the UK has just held on climate change, the Climate Assembly UK, how it was constituted, what they debated, and the conclusions that they came to. You can find its full report with all this information at climateassembly.uk slash report. Now the report is 556 pages long, it goes into much detail about this process, which is of course designed to be open and transparent, as much detail as you could really possibly want to know, and it concludes many quotes from the participants, which is also a very fascinating insight. You may want me to summarise it for you a little. There is also an executive summary up there. Obviously because it's me, and because it's climate change, we're going to go pretty in-depth, so strap in for that. First, some background for non-UK listeners. The UK has long had binding targets on CO2 emissions since the Climate Change Act of 2008. That initial goal was to reduce our CO2 emissions to 80% of their 1990 levels. Since June 2019, the UK has now set a target to get our greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero by 2050. So if there are any remaining greenhouse gas emissions in our economy, they will have to be cancelled out by removals from the atmosphere. Credit where it's due to the Conservative government, this was announced by former Prime Minister Theresa May and passed unanimously in Parliament. But of course, simply setting the target is only where the fun really begins, because we have to decide how to actually get to that target. Because let's face it, this is very ambitious. Virtually no industrial economy has ever got its greenhouse gas emissions to net zero. In fact, no industrial economy has ever done it. The world we live in has been powered overwhelmingly by fossil fuels for generations. The UK has cut its emissions substantially since 1990, but we still emit nearly a million tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere every single day. It's a big job. Now of course you could try to achieve net zero by simply banning any activity that results in greenhouse gas emissions, but that would probably be a disaster. You could equally try to achieve it by trying to build huge negative emissions facilities that just cancel out all of our greenhouse gas emissions for today, requiring very little change in anyone's behaviour or in any sectors of the economy. But most experts suggest that this would be an extremely expensive way to solve the problem, compared to replacing fossil fuels with cheaper, cleaner, and more efficient alternatives. As we've discussed, reducing emissions and tackling climate change entails decisions and trade-offs in many aspects of our lives, from transport, electricity and energy generation, our buildings, our agriculture, and so on and so on. Inevitably, there are different options for decarbonising each of these sectors, which all have a great many pros and cons to them part of what we'll be discussing in our upcoming Climate 201 series because obviously I have a lot to say about that. But for me this is absolutely fascinating stuff, getting into the details of how to achieve something complicated but vital. But what did the Climate Assembly think? Let's talk about who these people are first. There are 108 people who had never met before chosen to be representative of the UK population in a number of different ways in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, educational level, where in the UK they live, urban or rural, and their level of concern about climate change. Letters were initially sent to random postcodes. The people who responded were filtered down to this final list of 108 to ensure they were representative across these different categories. So for example, a quarter are between 16 and 29, a quarter are 30 to 44, a quarter 45 to 60, and a quarter 60 plus, in line with the demographics of the UK. People were selected proportionally from all over the country, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, the regions of England, etc. One stratification that is interesting is concern on climate change. In the Ipsos Mori Poll in 2019, when this was constituted, the 52% of the UK said that they were very concerned, 33% said fairly concerned, 9% not very concerned, and 5% not at all concerned about climate change. Meanwhile, the Assembly members were 49%, 32%, 15%, and 3%. In other words, there's a slight bias towards less extreme opinions and towards less concern around climate than the general population. So the very concerned is slightly underrepresented and the not very concerned is overrepresented. Pew Research does its own polls around the world, which you can find if you Google how people worldwide view climate change. And for example, it has 59% in the US describing it as a major threat, 23% as a minor concern, and 16% as not a threat which is actually not that dissimilar from the UK, despite our quite different levels of climate policy. If you can sort of imagine mapping minor concern onto fairly concerned in the ipsos Mori poll, you sort of get similar levels of people who have some level of concern, and similar levels of people who are either not very concerned or not at all concerned and don't consider it a threat. In terms of the structure, these meetings took place over six weekends Now I well remember that the COVID-19 pandemic forced us to lock down right in the middle of this assembly, and it's a testament to some truly heroic organisational forces behind it that they managed to get the second half of the thing done online. So the first weekend was about an introduction to the science of climate change, what the net zero target meant, and big ethical, practical and strategic questions on the road to net zero. The second and third weekends were about transportation, heat and energy use in the home, food, agriculture and what we buy. The Assembly was split into three groups that handled each of these topics, and then they reviewed each other's work. The fourth weekend was about electricity production, and the fifth was about removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. On the sixth weekend, the Assembly looked over the draft report and gave their recommendations, alongside talking about the impacts of COVID-19 on that zero. They also wrapped up with any additional recommendations. When it comes to giving opinions, there are a couple of ways that this was done. Sometimes the Assembly members drafted their own opinions entirely from the bottom up in a collaborative process. Sometimes they were allowed to vote on predetermined options, those were the votes that I helped tally, or for example strongly agree, strongly disagree, like at scale for different statements. They were also allowed to influence which options they were voting on and ask for other options to be considered if they wanted. This was essentially so that the Assembly, which is trying to work out how to get to net zero, would vote on a set of different realistic options that had been proposed in terms of policy. Then there were a whole range of different advisors. They had people from academia, as you'd expect, but also from business, from think tanks on the left and right wing, they had the Adam Smith Institute represented there, charities, and even religious organisations in wider civil society. So you can find a full list of everyone involved on pages 48 to 52 of the full report. On page 54, there's another interesting tidbit, which is actually what the Assembly members themselves thought of the experience. Overwhelmingly, they enjoyed it. Felt they understood the discussion, felt they'd learned a great deal felt the information was unbiased, and wanted these to be used even more in decision-making. There's basically just 3% of the people who went for it who disliked it, which is pretty good polling for anything, really. So we've talked about how getting the UK to net zero is really quite a complex task. The interesting thing that the Climate Assembly did at the start was to vote for a set of principles that would guide the effort towards net zero. Principles to keep in mind when making any decision. They drafted the principles themselves and ranked them in order of priority. Here's what they felt was most important. Number one, education. Educating and informing everyone about what net zero meant, why we were doing it, and what would be required to achieve it. And they felt that would be key. And hopefully this show is helping a little bit on that. Second principle they wanted to emphasise was fairness within the UK, including for the most vulnerable in terms of jobs, incentives, rewards, and regional differences. The third principle was leadership by the government, which was clear, proactive, accountable, and consistent. The fourth principle was that any efforts to get to net zero should protect and restore the natural world. The fifth principle was ensuring that solutions are future-proofed and would continue to work in the future, and would be sustainable in the long term. A sixth principle that they liked was a joined-up approach with working, collaborating, and sharing across all levels of society. The seventh principle was that there should be long-term planning and a phased transition so that people didn't lose out. The eighth principle was urgency. The ninth principle, support for sustainable growth and new technologies, then we have local community engagement, being a global leader, a mix of natural and technological solutions, transparency and honesty, and solutions that were underpinned by scientific evidence, and so on and so on. These principles were all voted on, and I think it's quite interesting to see what was prioritised here. So for example, protecting and restoring the natural world got 59 votes, compared to just 18 who prioritised protecting the UK economy, including from global competition. That was a principle that everyone had the option to vote on, but they weren't prioritising that in terms of net zero. Some people want to see a transition where those who bear the most responsibility should act, but this got just 13 votes, and I think that shows that the Assembly clearly sees climate change as everyone's problem, and something everyone should do something to solve although they also want to see a lot of leadership from the government on this issue, particularly in educating people about what they can do. Enabling individual choice and not restricting freedom got 23 votes. Protecting the most vulnerable globally got 24 votes, and so on. So I think it's really interesting to see what people's priorities are. The overwhelming majority for education is a fascinating point, and I think it shows that people are genuinely hungry for a more nuanced and detailed debate on these issues, and that's a really good thing. But they also know that you have to take everyone with you if you have any hope of succeeding and that requires informing people. The principle of fairness, the idea of a just transition, comes through prominently and a transition that protects and restores the natural world is also something that people really prioritised. So let's get on to the specific recommendations in each sector then, let's really get into this, what people want to see. For many of these cases it only gets listed as an official recommendation if over two-thirds of the assembly were in favour, so that's a pretty overwhelming majority. Now, each of these policy areas I'm summarising here has a whole chapter in the report dedicated to it, so if you want to know more about the deliberations, the specific recommendations, people's opinions that they wrote down alongside what they were recommending, you can find out there. In the report, each recommendation includes its own list of pros and cons that the Assembly members identified, alongside priorities that they had, and lots of quotes from individual members expressing why they backed or disliked a given option. First, let's talk about transport. For travel on land, the assembly basically favoured solutions that didn't restrict people's individual freedom to own cars, or involved massively reduced car ownership, and instead focused on shifting to electric cars and funding public transport more effectively. They recommended a ban on the sale of new fossil fuel cars by 2030-35, which would allow all cars to be electric by the mid-2040s, which is likely necessary for there to be no fossil cars on the road by 2050. The most popular idea was simply to quickly stop selling the most polluting cars, to mandate a transition to electric vehicles. UK government policy was 2040, so they actually brought this forward a bit. They want improved public transportation to reduce the amount that we use cars by around 2-5% per decade, so not drastic, but a little bit. The most popular policy there was investment in low-carbon buses and trains, new bus routes with more frequent services, making public transport cheaper. 75% of them agreed with bringing the public transport back under government control and investing to make buses faster and more reliable. So 86% backed stopping the sales of the most polluting cars, 74% favoured grants that would enable people to buy lower carbon cars, 70% wanted investment in cycling, and 72% wanted localisation, i.e. ensuring that people don't have to travel as far for facilities like post offices and schools. The key thing that the assembly wanted to emphasise here was that they didn't think restrictions on personal freedom in terms of how much we drive would work. One member said that technological change is easier than social change. They want people to be very free to travel, but instead the focus is just to stop the polluting transport very rapidly and go for a transition a bit like the transition from, say, analog to digital TV, where it's phased out by a ban at the end of these things. For example, one member said that the quicker the better, there will be hiccups so we need time to mend the problems. Another said that rapid movement to electrified transport was the preferred solution. There was a focus also on needing to develop the charging infrastructure for electric cars. Some were in favour of new road building, while others thought that it should be stopped until transport had been electrified. Improving public transport was also extremely popular, as was support to buy electric cars if they continued to be more expensive. Several members wanted more support than was suggested. People were a lot less keen on things like charging people to use roads, increasing fuel duty, encouraging car sharing, pedestrianisation, and reducing parking spaces to discourage car use. Some of these options did get narrow majorities, but they were much less popular than an electric vehicle transition and bringing public transport under government control to make it cheaper. Air travel is a very difficult issue for climate change because it's highly polluting and not a great many different solutions exist for it. The assembly was clear that they wanted a solution that would allow people to continue to fly but within limits. They were happy for passenger numbers to increase and for the aviation sector to continue to emit CO2, which would need to be removed by negative emissions. So this meant, of course, they were in favour of negative emissions to some extent. They were very strongly in favour of investments in hybrid and electric aeroplanes or planes using synthetic fuels. 87% of people wanted to see this, although many were concerned it wouldn't be ready in time. But 80% of them also recommended taxes that would disproportionately hit people who flew more, rather than a flat carbon tax on all flights. The flat tax on all flights was seen as unfair in case it priced out people on lower incomes from flying to visit, say, relatives who live in other countries or for their one holiday a year. Participants generally wanted to see these taxes being ring-fenced so that they would be spent on developing technological alternatives to flying or negative emissions to cancel out the emissions from flying. And they were also keen to see investments that would level out the cost of air travel compared to other alternatives. This is particularly a problem in the UK where it's frequently cheaper to fly from, say, London to Manchester, which is only 163 miles, than it is to get a train. One thing that's notable here is that the UK government projects that passenger numbers could double by 2050 if demand is not constrained and new airports and runways are constructed. But the Climate Assembly wanted that capped at 25-50% to more passengers in 2050, so slower than the growth in demand for air travel in recent years. The airline industry doesn't get off scot-free. Three quarters of the Assembly wanted to see them invest in greenhouse gas removals, and they felt that it should be carefully monitored to ensure they actually do it, and that the accountancy that they use for offsetting these emissions is fair in accordance with the principle that the polluter should pay people were much less in favour of the government investing in greenhouse gas removals for the airline industry since this would mean subsidizing an industry that is behaving badly unquote and that it would be unfair on those who don't fly and they rejected a scenario where air travel is allowed to grow completely unchecked and totally offset by greenhouse gas removals when it comes to homes particularly when we're talking about heating the home which is a big issue that we've discussed here the assembly's views were also quite clear We know that gas boilers mean that heating buildings is a big emitter of carbon at present. Solutions proposed include hydrogen, which could be created through electrolysis of water, with electricity supplied by renewables and then burned as a fuel. Also heat pumps, electric heat pumps, which heat the home through pumping heat in from the surrounding area. And finally, heat networks, which take heat from a central source and then distribute it to a lot of different buildings. They liked heat pumps as being available now, being efficient and working everywhere, but were concerned about disruption in installing them, the expense and the requirement for homes to be well insulated. Hydrogen got pros for being able to work with existing infrastructure, but many felt that the technology was not ready yet or that it wasn't being produced in a clean way. The vast majority of hydrogen in use today is produced from natural gas in a process called methane steam reforming that emits CO2, so it's not really a clean fuel as it's mainly produced today. Others were concerned about safety while others still were concerned that the process of producing it from renewables was inefficient. Heat networks got points for being cheap, and the efficiency of being able to use waste heat, e.g. from industry and power plants, was appreciated, because you can sort of use the waste heat from a power plant or an industrial process and pipe it out to people's homes to heat them up if you want. But others did note that it wasn't suitable for use everywhere, and it's predominantly an urban solution, and it would require everyone to buy into joining the network. The Assembly members were in favour of all three of these solutions being invested in, and made available to different people depending on their needs and what was going to work for them locally. They favoured a big programme of retrofitting homes to make them more energy efficient, but were divided between whether this should be done as one large initiative or gradually. In terms of paying for it, some people suggested that investment in green bonds would be a good idea, that it could be done with a big drive for philanthropy and charity money, or that you could loan the people the money up front to make energy efficiency improvements, which would then be gradually paid off through their bills. 65% favoured higher taxes to achieve this, although many wanted to make sure the money was ring-fenced to be used on this. 54% backed higher energy bills, so that was less popular. 54% backed higher energy bills to achieve this goal, so that was less popular. When it came to heating, some suggested a deadline approach that could be useful, similar to how we switched from analogue to digital TV sets. They also felt that a combination of individual responsibility, market innovation, and competition for supplying low carbon heat, as well as government investment and locally oriented solutions would be best. So each of those ideas, that is individual responsibility, market innovation, competition, government investment, and locally oriented solutions, got 80% approval from the assembly. So in terms of specific recommendations, they wanted to see support for smaller organizations to offer energy services, giving more consumer choice and competition simpler consumer protection measures, changes to product standards that would make them more energy efficient and longer lasting, local plans that would be drawn up for producing zero carbon homes, a ban on the sale of new gas boilers by 2030 to 35, changes to energy market rules that would allow smaller companies to compete, tax cuts on energy efficiency and zero carbon heating products, and information and support funded by the government which would help this transition take place. Let's get on to another thorny topic, agriculture and what we eat. Naturally the debate about whether people should go vegan or reduce their consumption of meat and dairy to address the climate has been raging for a long time now. The point being obviously that cows emit methane and farming them often contributes to the destruction of tropical forests. Much like in the case of air travel, the assembly settled on a moderate approach. They wanted to see meat and dairy consumption reduced by between 20 and 40% but for this to only happen on a voluntary basis, helped along by education, information and making lower carbon alternatives more affordable. Major focuses were around emphasising local food production, local produce, as well as managed diversity of the land in the UK, including restoring woodlands, peatlands and gorselands across the country. They also felt that if this was to happen, support should be given for farmers towards this transition, and that policymakers should ensure that changes didn't disproportionately fall on the poorest in society. So some specific policy recommendations here that they wanted to see. They wanted to see labelling of food and drink to see how much emissions come from different foods, kind of like calorie and nutritional information that we have at the moment as well. They wanted to see information and skills training for people who manage the land on how to encourage low-carbon farming practices. They wanted to see low-carbon farming regulations so that subsidies for agriculture would depend on low-carbon farming practices, as well as taking other actions that help to preserve biodiversity and wildlife. They were happy to see payments for farmers and other landowners to use their land to absorb and store carbon by planting trees or restoring peatland, for example. They were also happy to award government contracts that gave preference to low carbon growers and forestry. They wanted to see planning rules changed so that food could be produced in a wider range of areas. And they wanted to see taxes and incentives that would reduce food waste, for example, penalising food waste by businesses and individuals and encouraging smaller portion sizes when food is routinely wasted, and so on and so forth. The next area we'll talk about is things that we buy. Naturally, stuff that we buy is linked to climate change because much of it requires energy to produce and transport, and some of that comes from fossil fuels. They identified five key areas to reduce carbon emissions from this area. First, businesses should make products using less energy-intensive materials and with a lower carbon footprint. They wanted to see targets and standards for resource efficiency, i.e. making sure things are manufactured in a way that uses as little fossil fuel and material resources as possible. Taxes on producers, products and services who make things with a high carbon footprint were popular, as was enhanced consumer responsibility through education and information. They strongly felt that products should be labelled with information about the carbon emissions that went into producing them to allow consumers to compare and make a greener choice. I think it's hard to dispute that it's very difficult to find out the embodied emissions of the stuff that you're buying, which makes the idea that consumers can choose to reward greener businesses or lower the carbon footprint of the stuff they buy quite difficult. 74% felt that high carbon products should have advertising restrictions that include mentioning their impact on the environment, like we have for smoking and gambling and impacts on health. The government was also encouraged to prioritise low carbon producers of goods when awarding its contracts. They liked the idea of repairing and sharing of products between individuals and less purchasing of new products and wanted to see policies that would support that happening, and a much bigger emphasis on recycling, including schemes where you can get a deposit returned by recycling something like waste electronics, recycling on the doorstep, and grants for businesses that develop new methods for recycling and made goods from recycled materials. However, they were strongly against ideas like changing the working hours of a week or income tax to change how people consume implementing personal CO2 allowances that would limit everyone's carbon footprint to a certain amount, that was seen as draconian as well as hard to enforce, and as well as things that would require people to recycle certain amounts. They felt that the behaviour changes involved would be too difficult, and disliked reducing the incentives of people to work with a carbon allowance, reduced hours, or taxes on the rich designed to limit their consumption. Interestingly, they were also against any schemes that producers were involved in being voluntary, They wanted to see regulations and standards set that would ensure efficient use of resources. So you can see that in this particularly there's not exactly a wholesale rejection of consumerism. They want people to have much more freedom and information about how to choose the products they buy in a way that's good for the climate, as well as a wider range of options. Restrictions on individual liberty to consume are unpopular, but instead the hope is that by making recycling and efficient options like sharing or renting possessions easier, it will help reduce the environmental footprint of the goods we all consume. And people were broadly in favour of standards being set to make more efficient goods and more recycling, rather than scenarios with less stuff and more equality, which got just 15% of the first choice vote. However, several participants flagged their concerns that this strategy focused too much on businesses and not enough on individual responsibility to fix the problem. Others noted that while efficiency had improved in the past, consumption had increased even more, So, it hadn't really solved the problem by itself, which is a very valid objection. But there was a lot of emphasis put on pushing things onto people who produce the goods. The Assembly wanted way more transparency and regulations to be put in place that would reduce the CO2 footprint of making those goods in the first place. They didn't feel like voluntary schemes would work. Many were also concerned that without regulation, a lot of industries would not be keen to make products that last longer and are therefore more efficient in terms of energy and resource use, because they recognised that industries would lose money from not being able to sell a new phone or TV or washing machine every few years when the old one broke. On to electricity. The runaway winner in the UK is wind power, which is a good job since it is the cheapest and fastest growing sector of our electricity. 95% of them liked offshore wind, 78% liked onshore wind, along with 81% being in favour of solar power. They were keen to take care though that the location of these renewables was carefully chosen, Where they were manufactured was important, lots of people wanted to see more renewables made within the UK to benefit our economy, and they wanted to see progress on energy storage to provide a stable baseload for the electricity grid. They also wanted to see more incentives for these types of power to be used. Much less popular though were bioenergy, burning biofuels, nuclear, and fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage, this latter one being the idea that you still burn fossil fuels, but you capture the CO2 from burning them and bury it underground. They felt that CCS had issues surrounding safety if the CO2 leaked, and that it allowed for fossil fuels to continue to be used, which they didn't like. They also felt that it was an expensive stopgap solution that was only short-term when better incentives and alternatives were available. One said that this reeked of short-termism, and that it wouldn't solve problems in the long term. One said, quote, fossil fuels, their time is up, and that money invested in CCS for power generation would just avoid spending money that we'd need to in the future anyway. Several felt that this was too much like business as usual, and that the fossil fuel lobby was pushing for it. All of this meant that just 22% agreed it should be used for power generation, and 22% unsure, and the rest against. When it comes to nuclear, the main concerns were cost, safety, and issues with decommissioning plants and storing the waste. Many did like the fact that it was a stable and scalable source of energy, but others felt that it took too long to build new plants and was too expensive. This meant that only 34% were in favour, 16% unsure and 46% opposed. However, there was a little tidbit from this part of the report that I liked, which I'll read out. This was a quote from someone. They said, quote, How much of a consideration really is the cost? We are told that we can't afford things as a country, but coronavirus has shown that we can spend money when we feel we need to. The point is that the politics of these decisions is important and relevant beyond just the cost. For some assembly members, their views on bioenergy would depend on how bioenergy is being produced, including what is being burnt, how producing the energy is regulated, and therefore what its environmental and CO2 impacts are. Assembly members' concern about bioenergy included the idea that we'd burn trees and crops, that it might make up too much land use, there might be negative environmental side effects, and a feeling that there were better alternatives that existed that didn't recycle carbon dioxide. They were concerned about implications for land use, and also whether biofuels are really carbon neutral given the cost of transporting them and depending on the whole life cycle of their emissions. They were, however, slightly keener on bioenergy than nuclear and carbon capture and storage, so bioenergy got 40% in favour, 36% unsure or depends, and 24% opposed. Even though they weren't asked specifically to vote on this, there were quite a few members who suggested that tidal and wave power would be a good solution for the UK, given its coastline. I was actually writing about marine renewables at the time this assembly was going on, so it's heartening to see that they haven't been entirely forgotten. Several actively preferred tidal to nuclear power for baseload. I think it's also interesting that One of them objected to how many renewables are produced abroad, and nuclear plants like EDF Energy owns a lot of the uh, nuclear plants in the UK, and that's a French company, and they wanted to see a more domestic industry benefiting from the renewable transition. Finally, we'll get on to greenhouse gas removals. So according to the Climate Assembly's recommendations, we might have as many as 55 million tons of CO2 a year that need to be removed every year you know, compared to around 350 million tonnes a day. So there's talking about a seventh of our emissions remaining in place that need to be removed every year by 2050. And that can be done by a variety of different methods. The ones they liked the most were restoring forests, peatlands and wetlands, using wood in construction, and storing more carbon in the soil. Uh, Those all got majorities. So broadly speaking, they were keenest on the methods that were most natural and had the most co-benefits for society, including preserving nature, preventing flooding and erosion and so on. But they did want to see that these things were done in a sustainable way, that supported farmers, and that they were well-planned and managed, i.e. planting the right trees in the right places, and that land use in the UK ended up being balanced between all of these competing uh, pressures on it, from agriculture to forests for negative emissions and so on. Less popular and more controversial were bioenergy with CCS and direct air capture, sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere with machines, basically. Only 42% backed these methods being used, while 38% disagreed. So, a narrow minority with a lot of unsure people, although there was a bigger majority that were in favour of research and development for these technologies in case they needed to be used as a last resort in the future to, quote, mop up any remaining CO2. Their main concerns with these methods were leaks from carbon storage sites and also a feeling that they failed to address the problem, including the risk that they're treated as a magic solution or take the focus off the amount that we're emitting in the first place. Generally, they also considered them to be more costly, unproven technologies that were less natural. So when it comes to energy and greenhouse gas removal sections of recommendations, I'm really not surprised that renewables are more popular than nuclear, and that natural solutions to removing greenhouse gases are more popular than technological ones. This isn't a surprise, I think it's been true for a long time in opinion polling. What I would say though is that it seems unlikely that the cheapest path to net zero will just involve these. I think we're going to need some nuclear, I think we're going to need some bioenergy with CCS, I think we might need some direct air capture as well. I think it would be very difficult to cancel out 55 million tonnes of CO2 a year using just natural solutions in the UK, particularly due to our small landmass. For example, the Committee on Climate Change found that if we planted trees over 20% of the UK's land area, it only sequesters 22 million tonnes of CO2 a year, so you can't do it with reforestation alone. That will clearly leave us with quite a bit to do. Similarly, while renewables and batteries can provide an awful lot of our energy needs, despite the high cost of nuclear, I think a grid with some nuclear in is still likely to be cheaper and easier to construct than a grid with none at all. That's the kind of additional factor policymakers need to consider. But what I do think the recommendations do show is preferences and priorities. I have no doubt that they would argue that we should get as much of our greenhouse gas removals as we can from afforestation and other natural solutions before resorting to the solutions that they thought were more technological for the rest. Now, as I mentioned, halfway through the Citizens' Assembly, there was the COVID-19 pandemic, which required them to hold the rest of it online. Parliament and the Assembly members decided to also add a session on how the COVID-19 recovery should take place. This resulted in two votes. Nearly 80% agreed that the economic recovery should be a green one designed to help the country reach net zero. And an overwhelming 93% agreed that, quote, as lockdown eases, government, employees and others should take steps to encourage lifestyles to change to be more compatible with reaching net zero. Now, I've obviously been banging on about the green recovery for a few episodes now. This really does demonstrate how people feel on the issue. We know that vast majorities of the country don't just want to go back to business as usual, but want this disruption, if it can, to help cause positive change, for things to be built back in a better and more sustainable way. For example, there are a lot of specific quotes, and I think I'll just read these out here to give you an idea of the sentiment. In discussions prior to the vote, one member said any money spent bailing out dying fossil fuel industries like the North Sea oil is money wasted on industries that won't survive anyway. Another said that it feels like governments should bail out companies with green plans and in turn their taxes will fund the government. Many others felt that bailouts of high carbon industries should come with strings attached, like establishing a plan to get to net zero. I think that shows you maybe people remember and dislike the fact that banks were bailed out in the 2008 financial crisis and they've essentially been able to continue doing a lot of the same speculation as they did before. Here are some more quotes from people. Yes, it's an opportunity to apply some pressure to industry and incentives must not prop up old systems. They said provide an incentive to manufacturers to go into green products, but minimal support if not green. They said that they should ask for companies' carbon footprints or put in place net zero requirements when negotiating a bailout. And it said, depends on what big industries survive this. They're going to ask for a lot of money. Government shouldn't give it too easily. Should have conditions which are green related along with any bailout. Air France agreed to climate change regulation. That's a good way to do it. One condition would be to get industry to invest in particular technologies. One person said, It would be too easy just to carry on as before and to take advantage of cheap oil and other special offers, e.g. cheap travel, cheap clothes, factories churning out cheap goods to get the economy going. We need incentives to reduce emissions, to improve the quality and longevity of products. And we need penalties of people who do not consider the environment when building or rebuilding businesses. I think it's interesting to see how many people saw the pandemic as an opportunity for change, given the massive changes that were already taking place. For example, several people said that the ideal way to stimulate the economy after COVID-19 would be to kickstart the transition to net zero and to create new jobs in that that would replace the ones that were lost. It's a win-win situation, was one comment. So here are some of the comments that I would talk about here. I mean, someone said, a huge mindset change has occurred. This is an ideal opportunity to incorporate the assumption that any changes implemented should be compatible with net zero. Change has already begun, which is a first step and can be built on. Now is the time when people are ready to adapt. It's harder to get people to adapt when they're stuck in their ways. We have momentum. There's an opportunity to change things for the better during this time of adjustment and flux. There's a window that we must use before people become weary of more change and exhausted by further upheaval. One person said, It's important that we utilise this period of transition and inactivity in certain sectors to reinvent the way our country functions in order to make it more environmentally friendly. One person said COVID-19 has been a salutary warning that homo sapiens are not in total control of the environment and are not omniscient. One person said that net zero should be at the centre of government policy, it's about flexibility to be prepared for things that are looming. Other people said it's better for everyone if we embrace it, or asked why on earth wouldn't they go for a green recovery. There were far more comments about how important it was than the three or four people who suggested it would be the wrong time to focus on climate change that might distract from the economic recovery. And some felt that they viewed getting to net zero as even more important now, perhaps in light of the fact we've seen how much events beyond our control can genuinely upset the apple cart, with one member saying it's much more important to deal with this now, with the pandemic being easier to solve than climate change. They said the pandemic was the greatest short-term problem we faced, but climate change was the greatest long-term problem we faced. Several pointed out COVID-19 had demonstrated we can afford to spend money on things if it's a real priority while others suggested that it shows we can also adapt to lifestyle changes and that more widespread working from home would be a good way to reduce emissions in transport. So it's very clear that even in light of changing circumstances, the Assembly, if anything, thinks it's more crucial and important to address climate change and that COVID-19 emphasises our responsibility to avert future disasters. 80% of people thought it was important to ensure that there was a green recovery from this crisis. I think that's pretty impressive. Finally, there is a last set of recommendations that were made in the report. These ones were drafted by the assembly members themselves on the last weekend and then voted on by the whole assembly. They voted in favour of 39 in total. Here are the top 10. First one, transition to net zero should be cross political party issues and not a partisan one so that it wouldn't change with new governments. 96% supported that. More transparency in the relationship between big energy companies and government people wanted to see. They wanted to see us get to net zero without pushing our emissions to elsewhere in the world. They wanted to see incentives that would accelerate progress and conditions attached for organisations seeking government financial support. They wanted a robust media strategy on outcomes of the assembly. They wanted an independent neutral body that would monitor and ensure progress to net zero, including citizens' assemblies and also independent experts. They wanted to see a move away from fossil fuels and transition to new energy sources. 89% of people wanted that. 89% also supported products and services labelled to include their carbon footprint. 88% 88% wanted to see a follow-up in the outcomes of the Assembly, including what had been taken into account, what hadn't, and why. And 87% wanted to see the response to the pandemic and COP26, the next climate conference, which will be in Glasgow next year, hopefully, to drive international coordinated action on climate change. They were also keen for finances to be diverted into green initiatives, to ensure financial services divested from oil companies and invested in cleaner alternatives, for companies to pay for their climate impact according to their pollution and even for a government department for net zero to be set up. Even a carbon tax, providing it was fair across income groups, got 52% support, with only 22% opposed. Now, there were two motions that didn't pass, about shifting the net zero target closer to the present day. Campaign groups like Extinction Rebellion have argued we should aim for net zero by 2025. Now, this is because the world needs to be at net zero by 2050 to satisfy the Paris Agreement, and as a leading nation, we should arguably be ahead of the rest of the world. Also of course it's based on issues of international justice as the UK has historically emitted a lot of CO2 We should be more ambitious than other countries who need more slack to grow their economies and alleviate poverty first. Now I could talk about Extinction Rebellion until the cows come home weighing up whether I approve of them and on balance and all this sort of thing. I think it's quite likely that the 2025 ask is simply about trying to shift the Overton window. If the status quo is 2050 and you ask for 2025 you might get 2035 or 2040 which might just be achievable. However, getting the UK to net zero in the next five years, I would say, is not possible in a democracy. A think tank actually tried to calculate the cost of getting to net zero by 2025. They said it would cost 200 billion pounds a year for the next five years for a total of one trillion pounds. It's much, much easier to do, of course, and cheaper if you give yourself more time. Indeed, if we'd climate change robustly decades ago, it would have cost us much less to do so than it will now. A bit like early lockdowns and Covid. If you lock down your country early on, as New Zealand did, when you don't have many cases, then it's a much less damaging situation than trying to shut the stable door after the horse has bolted. Almost as if listening to the warnings of scientists engaging in long-term prevention of problems is a good idea. Kel surprise. Frankly, I think it's so difficult that any estimate is basically just junk, so I didn't dive into the details of that report, but they did come up with £1 trillion for the cost of it, if you wanted to do it in just five years. That's obviously a cost that was too much for the Climate Assembly. If you do take it seriously, though, the cost of COVID-19 to the UK economy has been around 200 billion so far. Bloomberg Economics estimated that the total cost of Brexit to the UK has been around 200 billion so far as well. So COVID and Brexit would give you two years of net zero to 2025. That gives you an idea of the scale of the 2025 demand. But it also sort of shows you that there are things that the government has been willing to do uh, that are on a similar order of cost. Indeed, there was talk of a moonshot project where everyone would be tested for COVID every day. And someone did a back-of-the-envelope estimate that that would cost £100 billion just for COVID testing. So, you know, they can throw around that kind of figure. It doesn't mean that it will ever happen. I don't think it will, to be honest. But again, it's demonstrable that although these are eye-watering sums, it's not beyond the realms of possibility to have this invested in if it was really considered the number one priority of everyone in the country. But the Citizens' Assembly obviously felt that this date would have been too ambitious, 40% opposed a more ambitious state compared to 35% in favour, with the balance held by don't knows. One thing that's quite interesting to note is that the Citizens' Assembly on climate change was one of the three main demands that Extinction Rebellion initially made, and they have actually come out narrowly in favour of sticking with the 2050 deadline. And Extinction Rebellion have said that they think that the recommendations of the Assembly don't go far enough, although, of course, as I say, they're around to shift the Overton window, so they're never going to be satisfied with whatever the policy is. But I think it's quite interesting that they ask for a Citizens' Assembly and then they aren't happy with the results. But I think what that does go to show is that, you know, people have tried to discredit the Citizens' Assembly by saying, oh, it's a bunch of extremists with a whole bunch of climate radicals in there. I mean, we know that from the makeup of the Assembly, it's not like that. And also, we know that they're too conservative for the actual activists. So it's indicative to me that it's a lot less uh, unreasonable than its critics would argue. So all in all, how can we summarize this exercise? I think it's a really fascinating one, and I'm glad it's been held. I wouldn't say the results are particularly surprising, either, as someone who's been in this space for a while and thought a lot about these issues. But when people get informed about climate change, they're keen for ambitious actions that will help solve the problem, which stops slightly short of being radical, although you might say that aiming for every new car to be electric by 2035 and failing out gas boilers by the same time is pretty ambitious. These are, however, what they voted for. There's not a great deal of support in the country for the fossil fuel industry or for deregulation. Preserving a competitive economy is not particularly high on the list, People love renewables and efficiency. They're not particularly keen to abandon their freedoms like flying, eating meats, and consuming stuff to solve the problem. Instead, on balance, they want those issues to be determined by regulations. For example, ensuring that businesses have to make products that are more energy efficient and use less resources. They want to nudge people towards better behaviours through education and information available. And they like investment in research and development to make less polluting technologies and so on. I think there are some environmentalists, particularly those who are much keener on degrowth and shrinking the economy and changing our lifestyle substantially, might view this approach as a sort of have-your-cake-and-eat-it attitude. That may be a fair criticism, but it's also where the public is at, and they're still supporting pretty rapid decarbonisation and a lot more government leadership to achieve it in the next few decades. People like things that protect the environment, restore nature, and solutions that are seen as more natural and based more locally are much more popular than top-down in positions and technological solutions. And the key value of educating people about the problem and its solutions in detail, I think it's gratifying to see that people view that as so important. There's overwhelming support for a green recovery from COVID-19 for the goal of net zero and for a lot of specific policy measures and changes that we detailed, including expenditures, taxes, and support for new initiatives to take place to get there. So any policymaker who argues this isn't a priority for people has to reckon with what happens when people get to spend some time seriously thinking about what we should do and how we should do it. Clearly there are some limitations, of course. You can argue that the plan doesn't add up to net zero or that tax increases or government borrowing to pay for it might be more unpopular in practice than it was in the Assembly. You could question the underlying question that was asked, which was how to get to net zero, which is our law in the UK, Um, but you could say maybe they should have asked whether to do it at all. Of course, the Citizens' Assembly doesn't tell the government how to prioritise action on climate change relative to everything else they have to deal with, although given that 80% of people and 85% of people view it as a concern, it's often listed amongst people's top issues, I think it's fair to say that people do prioritise this. You can criticise the options that were presented for people to vote on, particularly when they were bundled together into groups, so there is a certain setting of Overton window for debate amongst different topics here. Perhaps your favourite solution got left out, although I think it was a pretty comprehensive discussion in a lot of ways. And, of course, you can always question the evidence given by experts. I bet there's at least one person listening in the pro-nuclear camp who wishes they had an opportunity to talk to the Assembly and persuade them not to come down so harshly on nuclear power on balance. Naturally, even in this in-depth summary, I've not gone into full depth about the full report and what was a fascinating democratic exercise. You can all get a hold of it online, so do so if you want to read more. There's even a documentary that will come out at some point. I'm glad I managed to complete it all in the light of the chaos surrounding COVID, and I think it's valuable not only for policymakers to see what's popular, but also for those of us in the climate community to reflect both on what people value and also the very strong emphasis on informing people about the solutions and the real details of the problem, and that's our responsibility as people with knowledge about this stuff to do that. Another thing that's inspiring here is that everyone felt like they could take an active part in the debate and that they wanted to do so. These are random people, these aren't academics, they aren't highly educated people necessarily who know a lot about climate change. I saw an interview with one lady on the assembly who's worked as a fishmonger for most of her life, and the stuff they came up with was usually really on point, valid, nuanced, well-argued. They totally got this complicated debate, and to my mind that shows that if you give people time, space, and resources to understand complicated issues, guess what? The general public are not stupid. Ordinary people can debate and discuss and think about complicated things if you give them a chance to do so. I feel like way too many people who govern us just imbibe the kind of elitism that gets instilled into you in top universities in high-flying careers and so on, where they tell you you're special, and then you watch a TV program with some person who you look down on and they have a regional accent and you think they're an idiot, you know. I mean, that's a real problem, because what this kind of exercise shows is that people can engage on these issues if you give them a chance to do so. Personally, it's also really bloody heartening to me to see how many people think that the COVID crisis is the moment to address net zero, that we need to rebuild a better world than the one before the crisis, and that it's an opportunity to make some much needed changes in society, rather than saying, oh, well, all of this seems irrelevant now that we're in the middle of this crisis. The report mentions that some people had been severely personally affected by the pandemic, so to see that they still had so much optimism and enthusiasm for viewing this as an opportunity to build a better world is, is inspiring. Some felt more optimistic and determined to make it happen, saying that COVID illustrated the problems with delay, the unsustainable way that we've been living, or demonstrated that rapid change can happen when we prioritise it. So the green recovery, when people think and deliberate around it, they see as a no-brainer. I also think more broadly it's nice to know that so many participants got a lot out of the experience and they, they managed to come to agreement on so many issues. There were very few issues that actually split the decisions um, in the end of the day so I think that's evidence that the deliberative process is at least leading to people to to feel that some things are less controversial than others. A lot of them wanted to see a permanent citizens assembly established which would regularly meet with new groups of people involved in making the decisions and which could continue to hold governments to account even as the political wind shifted and changed. One of the older members of the assembly suggested it should predominantly be made up of younger people since this issue over what would happen in the next 30 years affected them more. That kind of makes me want to hug whoever's grand said that. All in all, I really sincerely hope that the government actually listens to, takes seriously, and pays attention to the recommendations and opinions that people have expressed in this assembly. I think there are a lot of good ideas raised, a lot of valid concerns have been pointed out, and we have as much data as we would need to know what people think about the issues when they've been presented with the case for each of them. We have a perception that we live in an extremely divided society where political gridlock prevents an awful lot of good things from taking place. We know that in the last few years, a lot of people's faith in democracy as an institution is in decline. Worldwide, 58% of citizens are dissatisfied with how democracy is working. That's up from 39% 15 years ago. The figures are just as bad in the UK and the US, particularly bad amongst young people. Only around 25% of people say that it's essential to live in a democracy if they were born in the 1980s, compared to three quarters born in the 1930s. And of course, this dissatisfaction with how the world has been run amongst a lot of citizens has manifested itself in democratic phenomena like Trump and Brexit both of which, whatever else you would say about them, promised us to shake up the status quo. Now, when you think about this loss of faith in democracy, it's quite horrifying to reflect on. Some people might argue that people in democracies have simply forgotten how brutal and horrible it can be to live under an alternative form of government like a dictatorship. But at the same time, we have to reflect on why this is. You cannot simply expect people to continue to be satisfied with the system, When they see it failing to represent their interests or improve their lives. When they see their lives actually getting worse. This dissatisfaction with democracy really started to set in around the time of the global financial crisis in the US and Europe. And that's when living standards in the Western world started to sort of level off mostly and wages leveled off. I think about what's happened since I started paying attention to politics. We've seen never-ending wars in the Middle East. We've seen the global financial crisis caused largely by financial speculation and greed. We've seen bailouts for the banks and the bankers who continued to make incredible amounts of money and austerity for everyone else. When I went to university, I was in the first group to owe triple tuition fees. My parents didn't have to pay any. They actually got grants to study back then. In 1985, houses cost twice the average wage. Now they cost eight times the average wage. Every election or referendum I voted in has gone against the vast majority of people in my generation's wishes, and the result has generally been policy changes That will either harm us or help others more as politics become increasingly polarized by age across the world. And that's a dangerous, dangerous demographic uh, transition to happen. We've seen employment become more insecure and focused on the gig economy. We've seen tech giants that exploit people and people struggle to rein them in. We've seen many years of political gridlock on a whole range of different issues. We've seen narratives about how democracy is being undermined by special interest groups, corruption. Money in politics, election rigging, media manipulation, whatever it may be, these narratives have been proposed by all sides of the political divide. All of this, of course, is feeding into and being fueled by a rise in conspiracy theories and the divisiveness of social media and algorithms, and heightening political polarization. I mean this obviously happens when times are bad, that politics tends to become polarized, but of course, in a democracy, this means that a victory by the hated other side becomes an intolerable risk. And so, people have less faith in democracy because they view the negative outcomes of democracy as much worse. At the same time, we've seen governments apparently powerless to deal with growing inequality, stagnant wages, social problems, and of course, the growing menace that is climate change that this is trying to help with. And now, of course, you're likely to have very strong opinions about how your own democratically elected government is dealing with COVID 19. I mean, add your own grievances here, people. This loss of faith in democracy, whether you think it's fair or unfair, sane or insane, it's not coming out of a vacuum, just as the loss of faith in democracy in Weimar Germany in the 1930s did not come out of a vacuum either. Addressing the problem won't be easy either, if you agree with me that democracy is still the best system of government out there. It's going to require democracy to demonstrate that it can get serious, that it can function, that it can address people's real concerns, that it can solve the major issues of our time. Every political and economic system in history has discovered eventually that, If you cannot address people's problems, they are not going to be in favour of you forever. Citizens' assemblies are not a silver bullet for the problems facing democracy, just as this list of recommendations is far from a silver bullet or even a comprehensive plan for dealing with climate change. But with the focus on nuanced, informed, calm, non-partisan, fact-based, solution-focused and deliberative discussion, rather than what all too often passes for debate these days, it could well be a step in the right direction a government that listens to its citizens, that trusts what they have to say, that takes their opinions into account. Imagine that. As ever, although the content of this show is not democratically decided that often, I would love to hear what you all think. Maybe you disagree with the uncharacteristic enthusiasm on display in this episode, or the idea of citizens' assemblies, or whatever it may be. Please get in touch via the contact form of our website on physicspodcast.com, where you can come in with any questions, comments, or concerns that you may have. Of course, many other things you can do: Twitter at PhysicsPod, Facebook Physical Attraction, all of these places you can follow us and keep up with what's going on. On the Physics Podcast website, you'll find ability to subscribe to the Patreon, where you can get all of the episodes of our SoftBank series and some more ones that are coming up in the future. Um, If you subscribe there, that will help us out a lot. You can donate to the show via PayPal, and of course, you can tell as many other people who might want to listen to give it a listen. Particularly if people are interested in the Climate Assembly, I hope that this. Uh, episode forms a good summary of the recommendations that they came up with and has been interesting for people to listen to. But of course you can let me know either way on the website. Until next time then, please take care.